Well, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. It's, um, it's just a treat for me. I, I'm, uh, I've been a friend of Sylvia's for ages, and, and she's been my teacher, and having a chance to meet with, with uh, this group is just um, always special for me. I, um, you know, some of the people who are here have been here forever, like me, and then there's some people who are new. And I, in thinking about what I was going to talk about today, um, my group at home, we've been working for the past six or eight months on the whole issue of anatta, or not-self, no-self. We don't really even know what to call it, do we? Um, and some of us have batted this around for a while, and some of us probably never heard of it. Is anybody not familiar with the word, with the concept, anatta? Ah, good. So you all guys, you're all on, <laughs> you're all on board. Um, well, that, there's the talk right there. <laughs> um, it's probably, you know, Sylvia said the first time she heard the, the, the three uh, marks of existence described, which were nature or impermanence, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, no self, she thought, well, two out of three is not bad. <laughs> no, but I, I know I'm here. You know. And a lot of us are sort of in that same, that same sort of quandary. I mean, and, and we really don't even know what to call it. Some people want to call it anatta, not self, no self, no fixed self. Um, nobody really quite has a conceptual handle on it. Um, but getting a conceptual handle is really important. So what I'm going to do is to try to try to share some of the the uh, uh, work that we've been, that, that that my my own uh, group has been doing on this over over the past while. Um, anatta is considered one of the three marks of existence in the Buddhist teachings. And marks of existence sounds like such a formal term, and it sort of goes, goes by without much thought. Um, I actually prefer to think of them as, as qualities of our experience, or marks of experience, qualities of characteristics of our experience. Um, the difference is, is, there's not really a difference, uh, it's a distinction, marks of existence versus marks of experience, it's without a difference, but there's a, there's a slightly different emphasis. We talk about existence, we're talking, oh, we're sort of emphasizing the objective side, you know, the, you know, and if we talk about our experience, more the subjective side. Really, existence arises in our experience, and we we can't really separate them, um, but the words we choose to talk about, to talk about this, shades our understanding a bit. So I like to think of of anicca, dukkha, and anatta as the qualities of our experience. And if you if you actually think of your the experience that you've had in this life as a whole, if you take it all together. What qualities are, 
are common to all of it. Really, impermanence, I mean, was it, has our experience been too hot or too long or, I mean, really, impermanence, everything has changed constantly. We're just, I mean, that's, we get, we get that conceptually. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, how are we doing? <laughs> no. Going just according to plan. And anatta, all things, well, as part of impermanence. Anatta, actually, I think in some ways is the flip side of anicca. No permanent anything. The word comes from um, the Buddha's. You know, the Buddha was, you know, his teachings, his insight didn't grow out of nothing. It didn't appear out. So he interacted with the environment he found himself in. And at the time, the Brahmanical, Brahminical culture, um, the, the, uh, what we now would think of as, as Hindu or Advaita philosophy, um, the idea was that there is a spirit or essence that permeates the entire cosmos, some godlike something perhaps, you know, spiritual. And we are all part of that one thing. This was, this was a Brahmanical teaching, Brahminical teaching? Brahminical? Brahmanical? Brahminical. Right, but Brahma was, Brahman, Brahma was the, yeah. So each of us has a, sp- because we're part of that, and the metaphors, we find these metaphors in Dharma circles sometimes. Um, the, the ocean and the wave, you know, each of us as part of this oneness uh, has a, sp- was a spark of it, part of it within us, and that was the Atman. And uh, I guess the, I they wouldn't call it a slogan, but, it, you know, Brahma is Atman. Atman is Brahma. So there was an identity there. And the Buddha said, Anatta, no Atman. And that's, that's the, the origin of the, of the notion. No permanent, because the Atman was permanent, you know. It was presumed to go from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime as an incarnation of this spark of the divine oneness. Buddha said, anatta. And we've been left to puzzle about that ever since. (laughs) You know, anatta essentially became the... uh, elaborated in the Mahayana tradition as uh, shunyata or emptiness. Um, and, you know, Gil Fransdahl is one of the spirit rock teachers and a scholar and uh, has his own center down in uh, Redwood City, has collected together a bunch of references in the original uh, Pali scriptures that uh, show the Buddha was talking about, you know, that include emptiness as as a concept in the earliest scriptures, although it wasn't fully, fully fleshed out. So basically the idea is the self, 
is empty. No problem. <laughs> and and this, this not-self stuff is counterintuitive. Not-self, no-self. In some ways, we don't really... We know about Anicca, right? We, we know about it. We have some ideas about it. We know about impermanence. But when something precious breaks or is lost, when things don't happen the way we expect them to, our, our crankiness and unhappiness, <laughs> frustration, reflects that um, even though we know about it, we don't live from that place. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, our, you know the, the one, I can't remember which of the, maybe it was Achan Cha or Achan Huang or one of, somebody, you know, broke his teacher, Asian teacher, master, broke his cup or his attendant broke his cup, and the teacher's comment was, the cup's time has come. <laughs> you know. So to be, to be totally in accord with the impermanent nature of our experience is not the same thing as knowing about it. But knowing about it enables us to work with it, you know, to recognize uh, yet again, until we get it, <laughs> you know, we finally, yeah, impermanence. I mean, the Buddha's last words, all things subject to arising or subject to passing away, all compounded things are impermanent. His last words. It's always say, get on with it. So knowing about impermanence, not quite the same thing as living from impermanence. Knowing about dukkha, we know about dukkha. I mean, the Four Noble Truths are about that insight, that one <coughs> insight into dukkha. Each of those truths, we call them truths, but they're really tasks that are assigned to them. The first task is to understand dukkha. And we sort of know <coughs> excuse me, about it, but that doesn't... Just knowing about it doesn't free us. If we truly understood dukkha fully, we would understand, we would recognize the conditions which give rise to our dissatisfaction. <coughs> and, and we would just abandon those conditions and realize the cessation of dukkha and live according to the uh, eightfold, eightfold path. So knowing about dukkha um, is helpful because it, it helps us guide our practice. But knowing about anatta is more problematic. You know, and, and um, you know, I, I think probably the most common question that I get asked uh, is, you know, if there's, if there's no one, if there is no self, who gets, you know, reborn? It's really, any of you puzzled over that one? You know, it's, um, nobody really knows how to, to translate anatta. 
So some people say no self, and they say, no, not no self, not self, no fixed self. I, I, no fixed self, I think, is sort of hedging, because you can have, I think of, in, my, in my vision, you know, no fixed self is like a glob of Play-Doh that it's not, you can squish it up and make it flat or square, or so it's not fixed, but it's still a self. We have cling on, hold on to that, hold on to that self. So I've, I'm not a big fan of, of no fixed self. On the other hand, it's not inaccurate. Um, so I want to talk a little bit, see if it's possible to put together a conceptual map of anatta and emptiness so that we have something to work with in the same way we can work with. And I think the key to all of this is the recognition of the difference between our language and the reality that it's representing or pointing, pointing at, the reality it maps. You know, the first, the first um, principle of general semantics is the map is not the territory. If we take something like, like this, you know, how the Zen masters hold this up. What is this? You know, call this a striker and I'll smack you with it. And if you say it's not a striker, I'll hit you with it. Okay, what is it? <laughs> yeah, you know. That's why I'm in the Theravadan tradition. <laughs> but if you, if, you, if you put a label on it, you know, this, this is not, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, the molecules in this object were not in this form. And you can foresee a time in the not-so-distant future where they won't be in this form again. So this isn't really a thing. This is really something in transition. It's really part of a process um, of change. When you think about the ch how, you know, a Nietzsche impermanence, the Buddha was talking about really a radical impermanence from the, th from the smallest... <coughs> subatomic <coughs> particles that exist for trillionths of a second in the super colliders. You know, I mean, that in and out of existence, you know, it takes instruments to measure. And then, of course, we've got the whole universe that we know, which is on a slightly longer cycle. It's, at this point, it's like, what, 13.7 billion years? Since, since the Big Bang, but we don't really even know. I've, I've actually recently become a steady state person again because, I mean, that went out for about 30 years after, after the Bell Labs people heard the echo of the bang in the 60s. But with the discovery of dark matter and dark energy, so there's only, you know, we really know only about 4% of what there is. We don't even, we know there's more, but we don't know what it is. Well, so I'm back at the steady state. I'm not sure I get to publish any articles in learned journals to that effect, but um, but in between the the cosmic processes and the the subatomic 
processes, everything is in change. Everything. There's nothing permanent. Everything's embedded in everything else. So, you know, I love this. Uh, there's a, uh, NASA has a website. There's this little clip. I actually carry it on my iPhone with a couple of astrophysicists talking about how the iron in your blood could only have come from an exploding star, from a supernova. That's the only place in the universe that makes iron. You know? Um, we're embedded in the, completely in the biosphere. Take us out of the biosphere, poof. So we're dependent on the biosphere, and the biosphere is dependent on the Earth and its relation to the Sun, and relation to the galaxy and the Big Bang. So we're, you know, this is all, and the processes in our body are all on automatic pilot. I mean, I never got past I, chemistry 1B. I didn't explain how my liver worked. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, you know, the chemical processes and, of course, the it's just on automatic pilot and everything embedded in everything there is only process. So there aren't really any things anywhere. <clears throat> so there aren't really things anywhere, and yet we got nouns. <laughs> you know, and nouns, there's, 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 I like, I actually kind of like nouns. There are two kinds of nouns. There are the kind of nouns, somebody once said, the, the kind of nouns that you can put in a wheelbarrow. There are things, you know, there's the folio and the striker and my, you know, what things, you know. And then there's abstract nouns, you know, um, the word accident is a noun, but it describes a process that occurred. It's not a thing, you can't put it in it. Democracy is a noun. Although really, you can't put it in a wheelbarrow, and nobody really knows what it is. I mean, what, you know, philosophers in the Western tradition have been arguing, if you can make something up, you can argue about it. You know, God is blue, uh-uh, God is red. It depends if you're from a blue state or a red state, of course. I have the political metaphors going for me, but, you know, you can make that up and fight over it. You know, but abstract nouns aren't even, aren't, aren't even things in the way we would understand things, and yet... We think of them as something of essence. Some of this is Platonic. You know, Plato had the world of forms where there were permanent things and everything was manifested. And we have this sense in, you know, that what's real is what's permanent. What's really true? What's really permanent? What's the real meaning? What's the essence? What's the essence? No essence. Emptiness. Well, we make the we make the mistake of thinking that 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 these words reflect the reality that they're describing. <laughs>
but really they're abstractions from it. Um, and and it's imp- it's important to to recognize this. You know, it's a, the right view in the Buddha's in the Buddha's vision means understanding anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And I think that in evolutionary terms, being able to think in terms of things and you know conceptually manipulate. Uh, our understanding of the environment and then and then act on it helped us made us successful as a species i think you know our thinking got us in the trouble we're in <laughs> as opposed to the trouble we used to be in duke has never gone away <laughs> you know the good old days aren't in the past um, But what happens is that we focus, so we talk about the present moment, for example, we focus on our idea about the present moment, rather than thinking, rather than being in the present moment. We do our mindfulness practice. But our reference point are the ideas we have, rather than our experience. Let's do a, just a little experiment here for a second. Um, a little mindfulness moment without closing your eyes to just collect our attention and bring our attention, our mind and our body to the same place, which is right here as we're sitting. And our attention can go to our physical <coughs> sensations. We notice the sensations of our feet on the floor and sitting on the chair. You can hear You can look around and there's a lot of colors and shapes. Sometimes we we think we see things, but we our mind thinks the things. (coughs) The visual field is colors and shapes. And sound, the sound of my voice, and the mind is is making meaning out of this. So the mind is all of these senses are engaged at the same time. And the processor sort of knits them all together. We notice our attention can flip from one sense gate to another. It tends to follow the moving mind. The mind isn't staying still. And is there any place there? Is there anything anywhere? Anything stable in this experience in the present moment? Anything stable? Just check it out. Colors and sounds and feelings and thoughts. Impermanence. And the language we might use to describe this would include nouns. My gosh, it includes the pronoun. You know. Uh, But it's not necessary to to include that pronoun. 
Now, it's possible to see that life is happening, but there's, you know, it's just happening. Thoughts happen. You know, you sit and you try to follow your breath, thoughts come up, huh? <laughs> you know, mind just does that. You know, there may be comprehension, but there, you don't have to put a you in there. There's just comprehension happening. There's no you to think. Just thoughts. An unending parade. There's no, there's just feelings of arising and passing. There's no, there's just things existing, changing, and you don't have to posit a you in there. We sort of do. And some of this is just habit. And part of it is that, you know, it's in the, the structure of our language, and the linguists who are investigating, you know, deep linguistic structure think that it's, it's, you know, we make language in certain ways the same way spiders make webs in certain ways. So when we say that something is empty, all we mean, all that's meant is that it's empty of any thingness to it. It's all just a snapshot of a process. There's no thing that's stable anywhere. And if there were, how would you know it? Because our sensorium is constantly a flicker. You know what I mean? We can't find anything stable anywhere. And so to say something is empty means it's empty of, of essence. There is no tableness, as Plato would say, or... There is no cupness that this partakes of. There's no, there's no thing. There's a Zen koan that's just simply unthing. And if you actually just look, you don't see self. Certainly, you don't see self. Some things are moving, some things are moving, changing. Some of the transformation is happening more slowly than others, other things. <clears throat> and so we, um, we think of them as more or less stable. And, and that's, that's not surprising, and it's, you know, um, I think it helps us as a species, you know, manipulate the world and, and survive. Makes us really, really clever. Um. <clears throat> so that's really, that's really the heart of emptiness, the heart of self. So when we think of, when we think of our self, basically what's happening is an idea arises. Now, you know, we can think of ourselves in a lot of different ways. 
and the way we think of ourselves will make a difference in the way we act. I was <clears throat> reading a book on, or listening to a book, as I drove to L.A. and back over the weekend, on um, uh, unconscious processes. And it was some description of, uh, it was something that just jumped out at me. It was just incredible. It was a study um, in which they took a bunch of 50 Asian women and uh, they wanted to trigger different aspects of their identity. The, te the experiment was going to be, they were going to do some math problems. And, <clears throat> as, and Asians are generally assumed to be good at math, and women are assumed to be not so good at math. And there's, so what the scientists, <coughs> what the experimenters did, was to give half the, there were three groups actually, the one group that got a, a bunch of questions before they did the math um, on their heritage, on uh, what it meant to be Asian, what it meant to be, you know, family and the culture and the tradition. And the second group of women got uh, questions about what it was to be a woman. Um, and the third group got questions about, I don't know, the weather. <laughs> and then they were given these math tests, and interestingly, the women who had answered the questions about their Asian heritage did significantly better on the tests than the women who answered the questions about being women. And um, the, the people who, who did the weather who were asked about the weather and traffic, um, I, as I recall, they fell somewhere in the middle. But this is just unconscious stuff, all automatic pilot, the way you think of yourself. So when there's a thought that comes up about yourself, we can have many different identities. We have a thought, and our neurology is totally embedded in our musculature. You know? You don't even think about what it takes to raise your hand. It just raises. I have no idea which neurons are firing which muscles. You know what I mean? I mean, um, when you think uh, of, some, of something <clears throat> that you want, something pleasant, actually, this is kind of fun too. Uh, I've, I've been reading a bunch of neuroscience stuff, and it turns out that <coughs> dopamine levels in, in the blood are higher when you're anticipating gratification than during the actual gratification. So desiring, wanting, is more pleasant than even the getting part, <laughs> you know, the anticipation. But our thought about a particular aspect of ourselves gets a physical response. You know, if you recall a time when you did something that just was so embarrassing to recall or horrendous, and sometimes it's, we find ourselves, we find it difficult to forgive ourselves 
when you recall that incident, you can actually sometimes feel physically tension in some parts of the body. I think the feeling of, of self is that an idea, whatever it is, you're thinking of yourself as a woman or a mathematician or, a, or a someone, I don't know, whatever, however you think of yourself. And the physical response, right there at the present, at the same time, feels like something. Well, it is something, <laughs> you know. But it's, it's, it's not quite what we think. It's just process. So anatta and emptiness is just about how everything is process. And then when we apply a mind map of any kind, a set of concepts of any kind, they may be helpful in dealing with the world, but we actually live in the, that realm of concepts, the world that we, we create. It's the, you know, when the pickpocket meets the saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. That works in our life too. You know, if, if, there's, if there's a really deep underlying need for recognition or desire for recognition, we would, you know, as we move into different situations, be looking for ways that this environment might be able to provide what I'm looking for. Looking for pockets. It's all just process based on conditions. We're, we're, we're just conditioned creatures. So the understanding of, of emptiness sometimes is, is, is helpful because it's like understanding a Nietzsche. Now emptiness often, I, I think something's happened to the notion because emptiness is sort of, <clears throat> is it a noun? Emptiness is not really a thing, but it's, it's confusing, because it is a noun, and it's been made into a thing by um, people who think of Brahman or some, some transcendent oneness of all things, the emptiness out of which all things arise and back into which they all return. It's something separate from this experience that we have. You know what I mean? That, that emptiness is something. It's not, emptiness is empty. <laughs> it's a big deal. Emptiness is, is empty. In, in, the, in the Mahayana tradition, <clears throat> they chant the Heart Sutra, which, which um, has the, the, uh, the puzzling phrase, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. You heard, heard that, that one? No. And wondered, what could that possibly mean? But, you know, it's, but basically, emptiness depends on things, to be empty. So form is empty. Emptiness depends. If there were no things to be empty, that emptiness is just a concept.
there's, there's um, the concepts we use are all conventional. You know, we, we use English concepts. I noticed um, I've, I've taken a run at Polly a couple of times. And, um, you know, sort of like the roadrunner or the coyote, you know, goes after the roadrunner and then after a few steps it's just really clear it's not going to happen. But one of the things... <laughs> one of the things I noticed in lesson two, <laughs> which I think I got halfway into lesson three, several times. I'm really good at that. It looks familiar each time I take another stab at it. Was there's a different word for raw rice and cooked rice. Just conceptualized. They're different things. They're seen as different things. We see them as the same thing in a different form. You know, the way we conceptually slice slice things up. Uh, but there, there's, there's nothing with an essential nature. So that, that um, conceptually, um, you know, I find that it's helpful to understand emptiness in this way, because if you if you know, you know, sort of like having a north star, a guy. If you know that, really, impermanence needs to be accommodated. Um, you can work towards that. And if you recognize that there isn't any essential entityness any, anywhere, that's something to work towards. Um, and to see that, you know, trying to grasp at anything, to cling to anything is like trying to grab smoke with your bare hands. There's, you know, just not possible. There's also emptiness. So emptiness is a perception, something that you can see, and something that, that can be experienced as well. And when it gets, when it's experienced, sometimes it's mistranslated, misinterpreted. Um, so for example, I was talking with a friend of mine who had a a uh, very profound experience on a recent retreat where he uh, watched an ant crawling on him and he realized that there was no separation between him and the ant. He, and, he, and he was totally, just watched the ant and he and the ant enjoyed, or he enjoyed this great communion with the ant. Um, and he realized there was no, no separation. And his mind went to no difference. Ah, oh, we're all one. And this was kind of, this was, I, I watched, as I listened to him describe this, I thought, well, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, because really what, if you experience that ant is just a label, it's just a concept that we apply to this bit of our visual field, and maybe even if, if it's tickling us while it's walking on into a tactile sense of an ant. You know. and we realize, and, and uh, sort of like, anybody remember that Frank Zappa song? Um, oh my gosh, the song was titled, Who Are the Brain Police? This, 
from and uh, <coughs> the first line is what would you do if the label comes off um, uh, Frank Zappa um, so what do you do when the label comes off well when the label comes off we realize uh, anatta, emptiness, impermanence, just the constant change, the label and the thing are not the same, <coughs> but we really want the consolation. And so we can interpret it as, well, there's no separation, we're one. But really, the, the lack of separation is there's just this field of awareness <coughs> that includes the thought ant, and it includes the visual experience. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that you're one, if, you know, that, that you're the same thing, because if you were the same thing, when the ant perishes, you would perish too. So you're not the same, but you're not separate either. Because, but it's, there's no you to be separate from, there's just this process, there's just this experience. So the experience of emptiness is often described in, uh, in Zen teachings. You'll have an experience of emptiness. And my friend had an experience of anatta, of uh, shunyata, of emptiness. Um, it often then, like I say, gets, gets interpreted as... Um, part of oneness. We're all, we're all part of the same one thing. But that's conceptual, again. Those are just concepts. The, the notion of oneness is a notion. It's not something we touch, taste, feel, smell, think. No. We don't really like this stuff, this Anicca stuff. <coughs> <laughs> really, Anicca, Dukkha, Nara, you know, unless we're, unless we're in some kind of a swoon of devotional, um, you know, I mean, because the, the Buddha's words, Anicca, Dukkha, Nara, but impermanence, not a big fan, you know, <laughs> of this cosmic impermanence, you know, the you know, unsatisfactoriness, Buddha says, if satisfaction is on your dance card, you're going to be dissatisfied. That's the heart of understanding dukkha. And anatta, there is nothing essential. There's no essence to things. There's just what, it's simple. The show is just what it seems an ever-changing, unsatisfactory. <laughs> that doesn't mean that there aren't good times, see? It's, it's, it's <laughs> that doesn't mean that there aren't good times, but we can pollute the good times by, by, by being afraid they're, gonna, they're not going to last. You know, um, my, some of you know, who know my wife, is, she's just finishing a... Uh, her second book, which is truly amazing, given uh, her illness. 
and uh, it's it's uh, uh, pretty much pure, pure dharma this time, and not about about illness. But she tells a story about uh, how she had gone outside and was sitting on the front porch and looking at what apparently was a particularly beautiful sunset. And I was inside watching the news. <laughs> and the news was disturbing, and I got up and I went to the door and I said, oh my God, they're, they're, they're shooting civilians in the street in Syria. And Tony said her first reaction was, doesn't he know I'm enjoying this sunset? And, can, and you know, he's messing up my sunset. <laughs> And then her second thought was, how can I be enjoying this sunset when the people in Syria <laughs> are being shot in the streets? You know, how sad. And then the, then the equanimous response, which, yes, there are people being shot in the streets in Syria and the sunset is beautiful. Things are simply as they are. unsatisfactory, impermanent, with no essence. As the Buddha said at the end of his at the end of his life, all compounded things are subject to passing away. And you know that last sentence the, the last sentence actually is usually translated, you'll see it in the in the scriptural text, strive on with diligence. But uh, my friend and teacher, John Peacock, likes to trend. He says, everything's impermanent, get on with it. It's an appeal to courage in the face of the way things are. And to just, just to recognize how extraordinary this moment is. Right understanding is the heart of, of the Buddha's teaching, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Understanding dukkha means understanding the Four Noble Truths. Ayakema, who was, the, the, uh, was a uh, German Theravadan nun, used to say everything outside the Four Noble Truths is excess dharma. <laughs> no. Really, it's about understanding the origins of our dissatisfaction in the, in, in the world so that we can, um, that we don't get trapped by them. And that means understanding anicca and anatta. And I just find it helpful to not just to know, about, well, if you know about it, if you at least have a conceptual framework for understanding what it's talking about, the language is not the territory. And it's not that we, you know, it's, it's not that we don't think about stuff. I mean, you know, the Buddha says what we, um, what we regularly attend to becomes the inclination of our mind. Well, all of us who've, been, who've, who've done way too much education <laughs> have, been, have, have developed real thinking habits. You know, we're so addicted to thinking. Oh, I'll think about that. Yeah. And then we get lost in those realms, you know. 
anatta, no self. Go look every time, anytime you want. Just look directly at what's present. The colors, the shapes, the sounds, the thoughts. You know, if you look, and of course you have to look, but if you look, it's, there's no thing there. doesn't mean that the habits won't resurface because there's a lot of conditioning. We're going to start thinking again. Stop me before I think again. <laughs> Help. <laughs> so that's pretty much what has been going on with my my group at home. I've just um, <laughs> any thoughts or comments or anybody anybody not have just no thoughts. No, the thoughts are there. I know they're in there. I did have a professor once who told me there was um, it, the exchange happened <laughs> he had over a lunch table and and. Uh, he said, thoughts are cheap, no, talk is cheap and action is dear. And I said, oh, and thoughts don't count for much. And he said, there's no evidence for thought. <laughs> that was, a, that was a, a position of some, you know, empiricists in the 50 years ago or so. I didn't say, speak for yourself. Because <laughs> that, you know. Please. So you use the word process mm -hmm. frequently, which it's seems now. like it's a way to get away from at least a lot of the permanence. So we have all this floatsome and jetsam that's bouncing up and down the waves and under the influence of the wind and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then I imagine myself kind of riding the waves and enjoying going down one side or having a hard time going up the other side. Mm -hmm. And that was more the quality of the process that would appeal to me and draw me to act one way as opposed to another. Mm -hmm. But not thinking that this was a frozen iceberg or something like that that I could hang on to. That's right. It's, it's uh, all the flotsam is also in process and just happens to be here. Happens to be here. Please. Do you think it's sort of akin in the same vein as don't take it don't take things personally? Well, don't take things <laughs> personally. Sort of is <laughs> we're we're getting into deep metaphysics here. <laughs> kind of like it's not happening. It's just happening. You know, it's not happening to me. It's happening. It's, it's that's emotion. right. That's right. It's, it's just happening. It's just happening. This life just happened to me. I don't know if any of you were in on the planning or you just, we just found ourselves here, right? And oh my gosh, you hang around long enough and you look like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, who's in charge? It's just happening. And we want to, we, that's, that makes us uneasy. 
And I think that as a species, you know, developing the conceptual tools that we have have made us very successful. We depend on that, but it doesn't leave us free. Freedom that the Buddha was talking about includes freedom from this sense of self and from the things. That doesn't mean that things aren't going to happen, you know, or that we have any control. It doesn't mean we get to do what we want, you know. It un- it's, it's just this constant unfolding. And we put labels on it to help make sense, to help navigate, to help work with. And a lot of that is, is uh, oh. this guy in this book was talking about the difference between the, uh, the argument of the scientist and the argument of the lawyer. The argument of the scientist is intended to try to uncover what's true, and the argument of the lawyer is to present a justification for what you want to be true. <laughs> Please. Um, so <coughs> if you take two two people and you and they're confronted by the same set of circumstances, mm-hmm. they're going to tend to respond in a different way. That's correct. So why would you say that there's no self involved with that? Well, because the the reason that there will be different responses is there are different sets of conditions. That there isn't any permanent entity here that's acting, there's no agent that's acting, you know. When, when we break, when somebody cuts in on us and we break, our foot hits the brake before we even notice that the car, I mean, it just, it's, it just happens. So the neurology is happening really way faster than our conscious mind can keep track. Well, what about their genetic makeup? They're different, they're different, that's different too. Those are part of the conditions. So you may have a set of conditions in your genetic makeup to be a particular way, and the environment may culture some of that more um, and enhance certain aspects. There's no entity there, it's just process. You know? uh, the painter Robert Rauschenberg used to say, you can't look at my paintings twice. You know, and he didn't mean that the painting was changing molecularly, although it was. So it's a little bit different. But he means well. The second time you've seen it, you see it. You've seen it before. You know, there's. You just don't. It's there. It's not. You know, and 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 you posited two people having the same experience. Well, it just wouldn't happen. That there's no such thing as as that. Uh, um, one of the, oh, there was a European philosopher, I think, maybe it was Kierkegaard, who wrote a, who wrote a piece about how he went to see uh, uh, a, a performance of Don Giovanni. And it was so wonderful, he resolved he was going to do the same thing the next night. So he went to the restaurant, the same restaurant, he <laughs> bought the same box, he listened to the same actors, and of course, you know. <laughs> same time, same station. Yeah. Um, I don't know the exact words that you used for Buddha's last statement, something about all conditioned things 
are impermanent. Yeah. It interests me that he didn't say everything is impermanent. He said all conditioned things, which leads me to ask, are there things which are not conditioned? Well, that's a great question, and there is in the Buddhist tradition uh, the notion of the unconditioned. There's the notion of the deathless. Um, and Nibbana is often described as somehow transcendental. But by unconditioned, if you look in the Samyutta Nikaya, the section, you won't find it in the Access to Insight uh, translations, uh, but the section, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, includes a section on the unconditioned. And if you go read the unconditioned, he says, monks, I'll tell you what the unconditioned is. It's unconditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion. It's the experience that's not conditioned by, by desiring, resisting, or confusion. So, you know, the deathless is also the birthless. You know, if there were a thing that was independent, that was unconditioned, it would never change. It couldn't be caused, it would always exist, and we couldn't possibly recognize it because our, our senses don't hold still long enough. So even if there were such a thing, but the Buddha said, it's all process. And, and the, the trick is to just check and see if he was right. If you can find a thing there, he's wrong. Yeah? Oh, that's a great that's a great question too. Basically, we're recognizing patterns in the way things um, in the way things uh, happen. You know, you watch ripples in the stream, and they go over a rock in a certain pattern. Every drop go, follows this. You know, we can we can measure uh, recurrent patterns. But then we have a theory: is gravity is this a is it is it a force or is it a warping of space? We don't even know how to conceive it, but we can notice the patterns. And that's what we're doing. We can describe those patterns mathematically quite, quite often in the physical sciences, statistically more in the social sciences. But we're trying to notice patterns in an effort to control. You know, nothing wrong with that. It just, it just doesn't give us peace of mind. Is, is, and, and this doesn't have much to do with our, our happiness or human happiness, I guess, but, but I'm, I'm wondering, um, and this is before the Buddhist time, so I guess it would be an understanding that developed, but, but are those, do those laws have um, that, that kind of um, uncompromised existence? Are they, are ah, they? I have a great, com my son is a mathematician, and, you know, over, over the years, he's 40, over the years we've, we've had this kind of this kind of back and forth is the, is the was the calculus invented or discovered? Yeah, exactly. And Robert Persig raised that question in um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. He said, "The law of gravity. Where does that exist outside the human mind? You know, that law is a concept. It's a conceptual construct. So those are things that exist in our minds." Well, we think that <laughs> we've, we've noticed some patterns. We, what is the law of it? Don't break the law of gravity. You know, I mean, 
Well, I mean, our relationship to the sun and the moon and is now... Yeah, well, you know, we used, to think, we used to think that, and then Einstein came along and said, oh, this gravity stuff, it's really about warped space. You know? Whatever that is. <laughs> well, yeah, right. So we don't, we're really living in a Euclidean, Newtonian world. But if you live in a, in a, uh, in a, uh, a quantum world, um, it doesn't look the same. So we make sense of this experience in order to be, to be successful in it. Great. Don't forget how to turn on your car. <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, the maps, the maps are really helpful, but they are maps. And the experience, we, actually the maps are part of our experience. And if you look closely, those concepts, they come and go, in, in and out, here it's and gone. Theory. It's just, pardon? It's all theory. One person's theory and then another person's theory. And, and well, some theories work better than others uh-huh. for some of us. And in the end, it doesn't matter what you believe. You know, really what the Buddha is pointing at is, is uncovering the origins of, of suffering. And some of the origins have to do with the way we cling to our experience. Fight for the law of gravity. <laughs> Repeal the law of gravity. Yes for gravity. No for gravity. <laughs> Constitutional amendment. You know, there, there was, a, there's a story, I, I don't know if it's true, but there, of some congress, congressman at some point who introduced a bill to make pi equal to just three, because this... <laughs> Yeah, right. Just too many digits. Yeah. So, so back to the, you know, the purpose of understanding all of this, or the value of having a conceptual map. Mm-hmm. Isn't, to me, non-attachment is the kind of umbrella over all three of those, over impermanence and no self and oh. suffering. That is the. Well, that's interesting. I I like I think in, in, in the way I understand things, the opposite of attachment is not non-attachment. It's not detachment. It's it's those are those are habits we get into with language. What's the opposite of attachment? It's detachment. But the opposite of attachment is is skillful engagement, fully being present, fully engaged without resisting or clinging. Non-reactivity. Well, fully reactive, reacting out of an open heart and clear seeing. Yeah, responsive. Yeah. Yeah, not detached and separate, uh, but fully engaged. Why waste a moment? Yeah. So back to these processes. And some processes feel, feel better than other. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.